Hi, and welcome to Beyond Parking, a podcast brought to you by the British Parking Association. My name is Joey, and I'm here today with Julian, and we both work in the technology, innovation, and research team. Hi, and welcome back to the second of the Beyond Parking annual conference mini series. Uh, That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's actually the BPA annual conference mini series as well. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> And what a conference it was, Joey. What a conference. Um, you know, some of the speakers really opened my mind. And today we've got the wonderful uh, Matt O'Neill, who's a futurist. I know. And you'll realise from my first question, I'm quite jealous of that job title. I want to be <laughs> called a futurist. <laughs> yeah, sounds a really cool title, doesn't it? And he does tell us what that actually means, but without giving it away, we'll leave him to explain that, shall we? Yeah, definitely. And just so you're aware, if you are a member of the BPA and you would like to listen to any of the annual conference, we'll leave a link in the blurb below so that you can download it and register. It's there if you want to have a listen to and it's well worth listening to. We've got another podcast coming out next week. So take a look out for that from one of our other keynote speakers, which is also really fascinating. One thing to say before we go to this excellent interview is we did ask Matt about um, returning to work because at the time that was the plan for many people, including the BPA, is to uh, you know gradually return to offices. Since then, of course, there's been the government announcements that it's only for essential uh, work where, where you need to be uh, in, a, in whatever work environment, working from home is still the preferred option. However, he really covers some areas that I hadn't thought about before, some technologies that could be adopted to compensate perhaps for that lack of human contact. So it's a very timely uh, conversation. Yeah, it is. it's interesting what he says, actually, particularly around the use of AI within um, meetings and kind of capturing facial expressions. and Virtual reality, yeah. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, well worth listening to. So, as uh, we do appear to always give half the interview away before we actually play the interview, I think it's probably time to go over to the interview. Let's go straight there, shall we? Hi Matt, great to have you on the podcast and thank you so much for um, doing the keynote the other day. It's, um, it was really fascinating and I really enjoyed it. I found um, the AI stuff really interesting in terms of where stuff's going in the future, in terms of Zoom meetings, really, really interesting. I was w just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your job title, which is Futurist, which I'm quite jealous of. So um, I'd love a job title like that. Could you explain a bit about what that entails and what you do? Sure. So I think uh, everybody's got their own definition of what a futurist is. And by the way, I don't think that even futurists always agree on what the job title actually means. So I'm just going to take it on my own. So I look at it as I'm helping organisations to see what's happening just around the corner. I'm not really, you know, that, that soothsayer staring into the misty distance or looking into my crystal ball because I don't think anybody can uh, predict the future. But, but what we can do, I think, is be a bit future ready. So, you know, let's look at sort of where some of these changes are coming from. So much, I think, social change is, uh, is created because of that rapid technological change that we're seeing. And then how can we uh, in our organisations apply that you know, for uh, positive change? How does it manifest? Well, typically I'm asked to do things like what we've just done, which is speak at a conference. So I do miss uh, actually being able to look into the whites of someone's eyes uh, or indeed a, a, an audience. Also quite often running workshops. So I might work with boards or even uh, do departmental teams. 
uh, but also increasingly uh, creating, say, videos and podcasts, infographics, webinars, all for sharing amongst staff and customers more widely. Uh, and most recently, um, because I run a creative agency in North Coms, we've started offering these sessions in virtual reality. So we've been dispatching uh, headsets to participants and then running sessions in completely 3D generated worlds. And I think you might even remember a short clip from the conference where Karen Facetta featured as well. So, so that's a bit about sort of what I've been doing and, and indeed what I do on a daily basis. Thanks. It's interesting thinking about the future and positive change. I think there can be a lot of fear about technology and how, how it can affect people. And I think it's it's good to think of it in a positive way. So I also really enjoyed the uh, the keynote you provided. And I, my ears really pricked up with uh, the talk of the new VUCA. I love an acronym. I believe it stands for uh, Volatile, Uncertain, Complex and Ambiguous, which I think certainly sums up these testing times. I wonder if you could explain what the new VUCA is and perhaps your thoughts on how this could play out in terms of mobility and parking. How it might change the sector in the future. Um, so I don't think, I don't want to discredit, let's call it old VUCA. I don't think that there is such a thing as old VUCA. Uh, there's just VUCA. So yeah, I agree with you. I love an acronym as much as anybody else does. And I think, by the way, uh, it's still entirely, um, still entirely creditable right now. It's just that uh, I think what one of my futures colleagues did a couple of years ago was he flipped the VUCA. He turned it into ultimately something that was a positive set of traits. So, you know, under new VUCA or flipped VUCA, we talk about uh, velocity, you know, our ability to enact change quickly to shifting circumstances. And a great example of that might be how uh, some car parks have been turned into COVID testing stations, for example. Uh, the second, rather than uncertainty, we talk about now unorthodoxy, you know, and I think this is, this is a real testament to staying curious and be being ready to approach challenges in unusual ways. So uh, a lovely example of that might be what we saw from reef technology, you know, turning shipping containers into agriculture production. And I think that's a real win-win example because what they're doing is they're making much more use of the available space. Uh, that in turn is reducing the length of supply chains and it's not dependent on weather. And that's increasing our uh, resilience in food production at a national level. So it seems to me like a, a real win-win situation for everyone there. And then we talk about uh, collaboration instead of complexity. And I think thriving in the digital world really comes from sharing knowledge and forging those new relationships. And parking operators, I think, are generally known to be excellent at organizing vehicle parking, but not known perhaps for their event organization skills. And I think that change uh, in the parking sector is going to require collaboration amongst the LGAs, PR teams, marketing teams, traffic operators, planners, engineers, contractors, and of course, technologists. So I think we need more uh, entre or sometimes now intrapreneurial thinking to actually glue that jigsaw together. And then, of course, you know, we keep hearing so much about agility in the pandemic. I think our capacity to adapt a new mindset in order to think differently about a challenge. Let, let's not get too stuck in what we think is right or wrong. Uh, sometimes I think that being a professional, in quotes, is often about hiding behind your qualification and experience. And that's just not going to work in the new world. I think we should aspire instead to professionalism, which is more about finding the best solution to a given challenge, e.g. being agile. 
So, so none of these things is about changing the sector specifically. You know, traditional VUCA described the actual operating environment, and I think flipped VUCA is more of a set of operating principles for a world in rapid technological change. But we shouldn't forget that, as Piers pointed out so eloquently, they are here to be informed by our wisdom in the moment and shouldn't be written in stone. They are there for us to control and not to control us. Thank you, Matt. It, it does bring to mind, um, I think, the realisation that uh, the sector realises that car parks are actually located perfectly for so many different uh, roles. We have a project with University of Sussex called Transpark, where we're looking at how um, we can think about evolving what the car park offers. You know, they're, they're so uh, nicely located in terms of infrastructure, in terms of centre of town, um, and uh, yourself and the other keynotes just got us thinking about uh, you know how we can think about some of that underutilized space that does happen in in particularly inner city car parks yeah this is me slightly going off topic but i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on risk because one of the things i've observed is that there's a lot of fear of who's responsible if something goes wrong particularly if you think about public sector and public funding and who takes on the financial risk. Do you know of any examples of how people have managed that within an organisation? It's uh, a good question. So I think what we, what we need more of in organisations is more of a culture that fosters intrapreneurship. You know, so taking those qualities that we see in the external world and uh, allowing them, indeed encouraging them uh, internally. So I think, first of all, it's, it's, it's a bit of a culture shift that's required, but also I think risk can be shared. You know, so I think it was mentioned during one of the workshops that were run on day two, and we had some excellent contributors uh, about uh, introducing public-private partnerships. So you know, where does the, the financing come from? You know, can it come from a variety of sources? But also, I think uh, when I hear about, say, how challenged local uh, LGAs are feeling at the moment with revenue, um, it, it's hard to see that why not to take a risk. You know, if if the choice is between taking a risk or potentially filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, which way is the best way to go? You know, if, I, if it were me, I probably would take the risk because it's better than the alternative. Uh, that's really helpful. And that, um, I, I think the uh, consideration of risk um, leads nicely to thinking about uh, the transition to the office that uh, many organisations, including PPA are considering people are talking about going back to work going back to the office and you did talk quite a lot about um, the new landscape the new working landscape uh, um, I wondered if you could perhaps summarize the three key things you think organizations need to consider at this time okay so the first I think is is the human aspect of this uh, I think one of the things that the pandemic has really highlighted is the importance importance of uh, maintaining our mental health and it's also I think accelerated another of the 21st century malaises if that's the word is is loneliness you know and the fact is that uh, certainly in the UK across the world we are not having a shared experience there's a vast difference between those who feel physically comfortable in say supportive relationship versus those who maybe are feeling a bit disconnected a bit lonely and maybe they're in a living environment they can't stand and Having 500 friends on Facebook is certainly no substitute for that physical presence, you know, even if a person doesn't need a lot to feel fulfilled. And I think we ought to also remember that some people chose their jobs, they chose to work for these organisations 
in part because of the working environment and workplaces, I think, are social as much as they are to get work done. And secondly, I think, you know, we, we sort of, uh, I think we overemphasize, you know, how wonderful it can be to work virtually. Not everything is best done virtually. Uh, I've long believed that mainstream collaboration tools were, were never built to do the job that we're currently using them for. And indeed, I think McKinsey put out a report quite recently where they were saying, you know, just five aspects of face-to-face -face negotiation, relationship building, uh, onboarding new employees, uh, critical decision meetings, you know, where you're, perhaps the board is making an important choice going forward, or critical conversations to stave off uh, conflict. They're all key aspects of working in business life. And I think what, what binds them all together is that, you know, we're all from a generation that has grown up ultimately face-to-face -face, and that so much is down to that eye contact, to handshaking, to trust, or those paralinguistic cues that we get from looking at someone. And also, you know, yes, you can achieve innovation virtually, but uh, in my view, that's the stilted nature of the multi-participant collaboration tools, Zoom, for example. I think it just reduces the natural flow that we get with face-to-face. -face. And, you know, now I've got a bit of a vested interest also. I would say I'm a strong believer that VR collaboration, when done right, can cure a lot of this, in part because... For example, you know, we can uh, create new processes, we can manifest 3D models, we can do customer journeys in a really, uh, really sort of uh, visual way. And then I think uh, many of those benefits of home working, you know, less time spent commuting, less interruptions, uh, you know, there are certainly benefits. I think that we'll see more hybrid working for, going forward. So perhaps, you know, one or two days in an office, three days at home, for example, but I think it should be a discussion with staff moving forward. It's not just sort of pushed on to people mandatory. But I also think that face-to-face uh, -face will be seen as a point of differentiation. So ambitious individuals or those involved in generating new business will recognize this. And my other concern about purely virtual working is it places a real accent on so-called task-based trust, you know, those, those qualities such as reliability, consistency, and responsiveness. And you know, one of the issues with this is that I think if people don't find ways of creating new value and, and uh, you know, helping to move the organization forward, they're unfortunately, I think, going to be uh, even more suited to the growth of the so-called gig economy as we're starting to see firms fracturing jobs into their constituent parts and outsourcing them uh, in some cases for the lowest cost. So, but they're all hallmarks of getting uh, stuff done, no doubt. But how are we going to sort of add value you know, through those water cooler conversations, et cetera? Yes, and I think I remember you uh, shared a, a virtual water cooler app of, of some sort. Um, am I wrong? Did, was there something along those lines? Yeah, I mean, so what I was highlighting specifically in the virtual reality space at the moment is I think that VR collaboration is where social media might have been in, say, about 2005 to 7. You know, you've got now these platforms are, are emerging. You've got, for example, Glue, which is recognized to be a, a really high quality VR collaboration emerging from Finland. What you've just alluded to, Breakroom from the company SignSpace, they want to become the, the water cooler, the social learning experience, you know, in VR. So, you know, just as we had. Back then, we had Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you know, the, the big uh, social media giants that emerged. I think now what we're starting to see is uh, the emergence of these new um, entrants in what's referred to as spatial computing, interacting with 
machines and one another using machines in physical space. I'm just curious because one of the things I've really noticed in terms of all the Zoom meetings that we've been having since lockdown and we myself and Julian have been having quite a lot before as well is that you don't pick up on social cues and facial expression if you can't see other people sort of leaning forward trying to sometimes people won't be heard is that in terms of doing VR is that something that they're looking at? So with, with virtual reality collaboration, I think it's something that by default is answered. So, for example, if when you're in a 3D VR environment, if somebody is, say, sitting or standing to my right hand side, what you'll commonly hear is if they speak, you'll hear the sound only coming into your right hand uh, headphone. Uh, equally, you know, there's this just like you would in the real world. If you're uh, sort of not devoid of all social skill, you might turn to face that person. So I think there's. There's a kind of simulation in some aspects of uh, the real world. Uh, but what you can, of course, do is you can do things in VR that simply are not possible in, in VR. So, for example, we, we've done things where we've taken a team to the top of Mount Everest. Now, at the moment, we don't have uh, the readily available. It does exist, the technology to simulate how cold it feels at the top of Everest. But we can certainly give people a sense of the sound and uh, how it looks. So the point is, yes, I think in but in these new virtual reality environments, especially those which are requiring uh, a 3D scan of your face rather than using a cartoon-like avatar, uh, we're certainly getting closer. And I think the new headsets now are starting to take into account sort of facial movements as well, which they will then superimpose onto your avatar. So it's not perfect, but I think that it's more suited to what we need now. I think that uh, Zoom was never intended to uh, or any of the uh, collaboration platforms the 2d video collaboration platforms they were never intended to do what they're being asked to do now we could do a whole podcast on vr i think it's it's a fascinating area but i'm wondering as someone i would assume has some lived experience of parking i, I assume you, you drive matt or, or or not yeah yeah really interested as, as a futurist what your experience of parking is and what you think needs to change perhaps to improve the experience for drivers, to drive up efficiencies for operators. How can you see our sector helping on all these fronts? Park, you know, isn't good parking about reducing friction? You know, it's about creating a more frictionless experience. It's not like we go to, or most people probably don't go to a car park because they want to visit a car park. They're probably going there to drop off a vehicle of some sort. So the obvious things would be, to me, make the payment systems easy and fast. And that's where I think some of the fintechs can get involved with uh, easily. Use really clear signage. I think Professor Woodhausen alluded to uh, greater use of digital out of home, uh, in this case, advertising. But that signage could also just direct people to where they want to go. If you're coming to a, a parking space that you don't necessarily know the town, uh, just make it really obvious where people need to go. Um, from a personal perspective, I suppose uh, I'm quite lucky. You know, I drive a car, I ride a motorcycle, and I cycle, and I walk. So I've got four modes of uh, transportation. But I I'm going to highlight an, uh, an appalling experience that I had at a, at a London railway station. So uh, I was traveling somewhere. I took the motorcycle to one of the London railway stations, and I was just utterly unimpressed with the poor instructions it was next to impossible to contact the provider. It was an issue over the payment. In the end, I ended up paying for a car space, despite the fact that I was a motorcycle. And I just left having felt that really sort of thoroughly resenting the overall experience. 
uh, and, and I just thought, oh, I'm not going to park there again. So I think that whatever operators do going forward, especially as, as regards using uh, parking spaces for their original intention, just always be thinking, how can we reduce the friction uh, for people? And perhaps people might pay even a little bit more if the experience is uh, frictionless. The other aspect to this is I think, you know, and this comes back to forging new relationships and partnerships. Allow other, in fact, not just allow, proactively search out other service operators to become part of the mix. So if we look at Mercedes, for example, in 2015, they introduced their uh, chark.me app. Uh, and I think this is about sort of controlling a lot of aspects of your car uh, through an app. But uh, they're also now talking about, uh, you know, whether people could have deliveries placed in the boot by a logistics provider. So giving access to a logistics provider, just another way of making well, life a little bit uh, less friction, especially those things where you don't want the friction. So I think those are a few ideas. Just reduce friction, make it easy and, uh, you know, look at forging new relationships to create additional value. Yes, I think we need to stop using the word uh, contactless and start using the word frictionless. Um, it covers everything, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering as well whether there's something in terms of the customer service experience, but whether there's something in AI or some kind of way that you can improve people's experience when they do get a PCN. I suppose, well, you, you could reframe it. I, I was in the research leading up to the conference and uh, this might sound glib, but actually it, it, I'm not being glib at all. I think I, I went on to one of these um, uh, quote websites and I typed in the word parking. And one that, one that uh, came out, I think it was from a US comedian, but as so much with comedy, they've got sometimes a grain in truth. Uh, he, he came up with this phrase in one of his sketches, and I think it was something like, um, a true patriot is a person who gets a parking ticket and is happy that the system is working properly. I thought, hmm, okay, that's <laughs> interesting. You know, so perhaps there's something to be said for it. Now, nobody wants a, a parking ticket, but equally, as long as parking tickets exist, uh, hopefully we haven't reached a point of civil war. That's, uh, that's very uh, timely. We, we've done uh, quite a big study of uh, public perceptions of parking. And contrary to what the, uh, the press would tell us so often, is that there was uh, a valuing amongst the public about enforcement and the reason for it. So uh, you're not far off the mark in that comment. But uh, yeah, there's, there's many different perceptions as the research drew out. Mm, interesting. I mean, I also feel a degree of sympathy at the moment for uh, LGAs, you know, if, if they are struggling so much because of the, the pandemic to find revenues. Uh, in fact, I got a, a ticket not, not, uh, not too long ago. And after reading that quote, you know, it's not, I, of course, I resented paying the money and I, you know, I thought it was overzealous. But there was also another part of me that thought, well, actually, you know, I'd rather give a little extra um, in order to keep the basic services going. You know, I don't want to see LGAs falling into uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So, um, but perhaps I'm part of a, a privileged few. So as we near the end of this uh, interview, Matt, I wondered if you could tell us about your experience of the uh, BPA's first virtual annual conference. Right. So, uh, well, the first thing that I learned from this, this whole endeavour is that parking is way more interesting than I first gave it credit for. You know, like, I mean, when I was telling family and friends, there was a certain amount of sniggering. And, uh, and I absolutely don't share it. I think it's a fascinating area. In fact, I Welcome think, to our uh, world, Matt. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. And I think there's potential here to literally, I mean, to be a massive part of the regeneration 
uh, of um, as we escape from, from the pandemic and as we escape from lockdown. So I think that there's so much opportunity. It's, it's really wonderful. In terms of the conference itself, uh, I thought the logistics were excellent. I thought that we got, as speakers, we were getting really good briefing. I didn't have to ask uh, any questions. I knew where I needed to be and at what time. Um, so I thought that that was excellent. I thought also BPA, and I, you know, I've been sort of doing professional speaking now for about four years. Uh, I was really impressed with the level of risk taking that it took. You know, so uh, for example, so you know, I work with uh, a whole range of different speakers, and uh, you know, bringing in, for example, Piers Thurston. Uh, I've had a few situations where clients have been a bit nervous because you know his stuff out there I think is utterly necessary, uh, but for some it doesn't sort of fit into that nice uh, clean box and something to tick off. But uh, I attended the his keynote and also took part in the workshop, and you know I've worked with peers in various different ways, and and I was absolutely blown away with how quickly. Uh, people grasp the concepts because what he was doing was he was encouraging people to think in a way that probably they'd never thought. Society does not encourage us to look at change and, and ourselves in the way that Piers was addressing. And I was really, really happy to see how engaged people were there. So I thought, brilliant, brilliant bit of uh, risk taking paid off an absolute treat oh thank you yeah it's um well a huge amount of work went into it by the teams one of the things that we really have embraced is just trying new things out and which is how this podcast came about as well is just testing things and trying new things it's how you make progress it's how the world moves forward you know um and in these in these struggling times you know as i said earlier i think this is the time to try new things you know if you can't try new things now well, you might as well just give up. Yeah, exactly. That takes us quite nicely onto our final question, which is the future of parking. There was a huge amount of conversation within the whole of the three-day conference around where the parking sector was going and how the spaces were going to be used and how enforcement was going to happen. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on where you saw the future of parking going. Yeah, no problem. So, you know, I'm going to refer back to day one, if I may, um, when Professor Woodhausen uh, pointed out that rumours of peak car aren't coming true. I was absolutely um, uh, in agreement with him. You know, there's huge demographic swathes, you know, across the UK who just need cars to get around. You know, older people, for example, who uh, find it harder to access public services or those living in rural areas. Right. So even in the, the short term, I think there must be data about office workers, for example, feeling uncomfortable to use public transport, but they still need to get to a physical place of work. And that inevitably for a lot of people requires using uh, cars. But I'm also a huge fan of uh, change, positive change. So why not adapt some of this unused parking spaces for other purposes? And so we saw Barack Zimmerman from Reef Technology in my keynote, he joined us to show how they're making money from growing salad and vegetables, which we alluded to in, in Paris in shipping containers and also they're making money from so-called dark kitchens as well so these are essentially also converted shipping containers that have been set up to for food delivery so in the isle of dogs where they're operating in east london quite a secure car park with a huge metal gate you've got the delivery drivers coming in from say the uber eats and the delivery and they're coming up to pick up food from i think what it's listed as wings and tings which suggests that it's sort of chicken related type of food so I thought that was really wonderful to see, you know, people embracing this. But uh, for operators thinking of how to 
reclassify usage, I think it's obvious to me to look at the rise of the trend of homework. And so what services do people need more of if that is a trend that's only going to continue to either grow or at least stay uh, fairly uh, level? And that's why I think logistics providers are establishing, say, nano warehouses for deliveries. We talked about the Komodo project in Berlin, where you've got you know, the DHLs and the Hermes, etc., coming together to do that final mile delivery uh, from containers in, um, in uh, parking spaces. Or indeed in Australia, you alluded earlier about these dark stores. They are setting up these dark stores, which are essentially just there to uh, help reduce the costs of those final mile deliveries associated with e-commerce. But uh, particularly what I really like is in the afternoon workshops, some of the examples and ideas coming up from members. And one that really stuck in my mind, I hope his name was Joshua. Uh, he was from Cambridge, Massachusetts in the US and he told us of how they'd established a project called Starlight Square, which reclassified a parking space for theatrical and music performance. And I loved it, I thought brilliant. You know. Not only are you talking about it, you've done it. Uh, I thought, brilliant. Uh, one, one point that he did make there was he said, uh, I think they were quite close to the decision makers and they had the lawyers in his way paper it up quite quickly. So uh, I thought just what a wonderful example. Or even Julia Jets with the Park Active initiative that BPA have uh, initiated. You know, talk of bicycle servicing. And I think in Oxford, they've got handlebars.io, the website. They'll come and uh, do mobile bicycle servicing. She emphasized, the importance of having changing rooms for people uh, or even concierge services you know concierge services in parking spaces and that fits perfectly with uh, a theory i've had for a while now that going forward people will pay a premium for the human touch so you know just a marginal extra cost but delivering a service reducing people's friction i think people would be prepared to pay for that uh, but i'd conclude on this section i think this is a really important principle you know the future it doesn't just happen to us. It's what we do in this moment that counts, right? And I think the BPA is in a fantastic place to create new partnerships, but more importantly, to show the industry what could be, right? Now is the time for a visionary perspective. And in the BPA's words, it is indeed a brave new world. Just to mention to anyone listening that uh, your keynotes and J uh, Professor James Woodhausen and Piers Thurston, they will all be available to watch on the website for uh, our members. So uh, if you missed the actual event, it's all there. That's the great thing about a virtual event. It's all recorded and it's all there for you to see. It's been a great pleasure interviewing you today. And um, I'm sure we're going to hear more from you at the BPA. Some of your insights are invaluable and I think uh, we'll certainly be considering a lot of things you've been talking about as we go into the new normal. Thanks, it's been an absolute pleasure. And as I say, you know, I think parking is, it's just so much more interesting than I thought it was going to be, you know, but that says more about me than, than uh, parking itself, that's for sure. But that's, a I think that's a very common experience yeah. of all the stuff, yeah. <laughs> I think the general theme is parking, who knew? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not wrong. Cool. Well, great having you on the show and thank you. Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye.